Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. The basic principles of writing a book are simple. Come up with an idea, write it. Of course, it isn't really that simple, and it is a lot of hard work. But that's about the size of it, right? Well, not always. What happens if you are asked to write for a hugely popular franchise? The idea might not be anything to do with you. The characters in the world are already well-established. The story is required to fit into an extremely narrow parameters. So how does writing a book for a franchise differ from creating something original? What happens when you have much bigger forces to answer to? Now, we don't often have episodes where we dig into the craft of writing, so we have been looking forward to this one especially. In this episode, we are honoured to be joined by Una McCormack to discuss the art of franchise writing. So, Una, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, hi, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, I'm Una McCormack and I write TV tie-in novels. I write for franchises like Star Trek and Doctor Who. And I've also done a lot of audio drama, uh, sort of spin-offs, some Doctor Who and uh, other things like Blake Seven and so on. So yeah, most of what I do is, is, is working with other people's universes. Yeah. That to me seems incredibly daunting. I would be absolutely terrified of doing that, but uh, we'll come to that <laughs> in a bit. Uh, first off, um, we just want to ask you a little bit just about franchise writing, because I don't know exactly about Lucy and Charlotte, but especially to me, this seems like a completely different world that I have no idea about at all. So I was just wondering, like, what are the briefs like? And, and you know, how much how much room do you have to bring your own ideas to what you're writing about um, versus just like getting a really detailed plot synopsis that you have to stick to the letter? Oh, right. Well, I, and I very, fairly re- very rarely had a detailed plot outline. I, in fact, I don't think I ever have. Part of what you're doing is working up the outline. So I think usually what happens is, well, let, let's think of sort of my most um, recent ones. I've just done a novel that was a prequel novel to Star Trek Picard. Uh, and that's that's what they came and asked for. They said, we've got Star Trek Picard starting quite soon. You may have heard that this is happening. Yes, I had. And we want something that um, happens that explains what happened before that show started. So I, I, I'm assuming that people have seen it, but I think you would discover within the first five or ten minutes that Picard has left Starfleet under unhappy circumstances. So they wanted the book that explained that. Uh, and what I did in that case was uh, I said, yes, I'd love to do this. And then I worked pretty closely with the people in the writer's room, particularly one person, Kirsten Bayer, who was uh, co-creator of the show and is also has been a franchise book writer herself. And we worked out quite a detailed outline together. So we, we sort of sat and really worked on it. We'd done this before on a Star Trek Discovery novel. And then really it was it was down to me to write the book. So part of what you're doing is coming up with what's going to be in the book. That was a show that was in production. It was obviously quite high profile. In other cases, I've had something as as brief as we want something spooky and contemporary for a Doctor Who book. And I've come back with a kind of, you know, handful of ideas. And they've said, 
we like that one. So really, it's, it, you know, you start with one line, spooky and contemporary or a prequel to this show. And then I've got as much freedom as I like, to be honest. You know, we talk about people like who are pantsers and plotters and, and <laughs> I am a pantser and I always will be. And it's terrifying. I have a, I lead a terrifying existence, um, but I can't seem to, to kind of operate any other way. Um, so I was just wondering for you, what are you like? What is your kind of modus operandi when you when you sit down and write a book? Is it easy for you to kind of do the plotting in advance? Um, or are you someone who likes to kind of plant organically? Because the thing is, you've just explained, you know, having to sit down with another person when, you know, your your the novels you're writing aren't wholly dependent on you. There are, you know, there are briefs to fill and there are things that you have to include. How does that kind of play out against, you know, your your natural inclination? I am so much uh, a planner; it's it's ridiculous. So I I'm sitting here. You're asking this question. I thought if if uh, they could only see the scene outline to uh, the, the the next novel that I'm writing, which I can't tell you about yet. If you could sit and look at my my detailed table of of uh, scene breakdown uh, for my next novel, you would laugh at that question. I sat and did it the other day, and it, it made me feel very very calm. Um, and it looks absolutely beautiful. The only curse now, of course, that I have to write the wretched things. <laughs> that's the that's the tricky bit. Um, no, I'm absolutely, absolutely a, a, a planner, uh, and partly that's because you're being asked to to deliver an outline. So some of the outlines that I can deliver, I might, if uh, uh, I think the Picard book was a good example of this, uh, it was a, a, a hundred thousand word novel, and I sent in an outline of about eight to 10,000 words, I think. We really broke that one down because we 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 really wanted to get it right and, and work it through and make it collect, connect up. But often in my outlines, they, they, they're not just descriptive. I start to, I start to break into narrative. So it's, it all starts from planning. I, I feel my, my outlines are my first draft, I think, but very, very much a planner. Yeah. I'd, I'd panic without a plan. This is so strange to me because it sounds like a nice world and yet it's so so far beyond my reach that mm. <laughs> I just can't I can't do that. I, I don't know my characters well enough in the beginning, so I have to go with them on the journey to find out. And the only way to do that is to sit down and look at a blank page and just start writing it. Um, and that terrifies me. It's, it's scary, but um, it seems to be the only way I'm able to work. And of course, I, I suppose the difference is, is that I'm working with with characters often who are who are pretty well established. Yeah, uh, so you know, I'm 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 picking up Jean Luc Picard, and uh, we've got a whole history of this character. It, we've in that book, we've come to him at a particular point in his life, but but he's familiar to us. We know we know his voice. Uh, uh, the book I did just after uh, was an autobiography, um, inverted commas, of, of Catherine Janeway, and again, we know her really well. So I'm. I suppose I'm. I'm getting to know people who are established. There are a lot of. I mean, I create a lot of original characters as well. They tend to appear organically, a lot more organically. Uh, and finding their voice, that can take a little bit more work, I think. So there is. I. I don't want it to sound like it's mechanical, because there's a lot of sort of decision making that goes on about how the scenes look, who the chief point of view characters are, the the things that I really love that emerge organically are the kind of warp and weft, the central images or the tone of a story or the um, the the sort of thickness of it, I think. And that I, I love 
developing as I'm writing. But um, it helps to have the the events sorted out in my head, I think. Well, you're a bit like me because we met on a ghostwriting and franchises panel at one of the cons that we went to. And I'm totally with you that if you're doing this kind of writing to brief, you've got to be able to break it down and know how many words you've got in a chapter, what's going to happen to this chapter, that chapter and whatever. And it's a very strange way to work. And it's it's quite terrifying in its own way because you go, what if I get there and it doesn't quite work? But one of the things that I found really interesting that you discussed at the panel was how you actually got into this writing gig in the first place, because it was quite a fun story, as, as I recall. So would you mind sharing it again with our listeners as to how you got into these fabulous jobs of writing for Star Trek and Doctor Who and all these things? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had no, I had no intention of of becoming a a, a writer. I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd always written stuff as a kid, and you know, I'd I'd written stories and and that sort of thing. But I was writing fan fiction. I was I was uh, just sort of you know like lots of us do. I was just writing some stories to entertain myself and putting them on the internet. And I'd written quite a lot of Deep Space Nine stuff, and it got quite well received. People had enjoyed it. And then I was sort of moving on. I was starting to write Tolkien stuff. I think uh, Fellowship of the Ring had just come out. And I got an email out of the blue from a guy who introduced himself as uh, Marco Palmieri. And I thought, I've seen that name around somewhere. Oh, he's the editor of the Star Trek pocketbooks at Simon & Schuster. Oh, he's asking, would I like to pitch? Apparently, my stuff had been recommended to him and he was looking for new voices at the time. He thought... Oh, I'll give I'll give this person a, an email. So obviously, I absolutely jumped on the chance. And again, I, I sort of drew out a handful of pitches, uh, and he picked up one or two of them, and and that's where it all started. And once you've got a track record in in this sort of thing, once you can deliver, it's, it's easier to get more work. But that was my aim. Yeah, a man asked me, would I like to do it? I was doing a PhD in sociology at the time. I was going to do something completely different, but this turned out to be more fun. <laughs> To me, I'm just like, does this mean you get to legit sit around and watch hours and hours of Star Trek and get to say that it's research and for work? Yes. <laughs> yes. So for the Janeway book, I uh, I sat and I mainlined all seven seasons of Voyager in about um, about six or seven weeks. It's quite it's quite I was quite focused. <laughs> But um, but yeah, it was research. I'd watched it before, you know, I'd watched it by now. I, re- I really wanted to immerse myself because an autobiography, it was first person. So I really, really wanted to be immersed in it. But yep, literally last week I was I was um, sitting there going, got to get through these episodes of Star Trek today to my other half. And he's like, this isn't a real job. <laughs> yeah. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I know. But yeah. Quite jealous of that. It, it's... it's not a bad way. They don't tell you about these jobs at the career service, do they? They don't say, do you want to, would you like to sit around watching Star Trek? Yes, please. That would be lovely. (laughs) (laughs) But when it comes to to something like, like Star Trek and Doctor Who, you know, these are really sprawling franchises. And, you know, I, I hear lots of fantasy writers when they're creating secondary worlds, you know, they'll have like, a world bible which goes into all the details about how the world works and like all the different places that exist and the different kinds of characters and the different kinds of species and creatures and all this kind of thing i mean i imagine that it's even harder if you did not develop that world and you know i'm a huge star trek fan but i absolutely do not know all the different aliens that already exist and the 
customs and cultures that go along with everything. I mean, is there, do you get given a world Bible or is there like some kind of, or did you just use like the, I'm not sure what the Star Trek one is, but like the Star Wars one is Wikipedia, which I really yeah. like. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, there is, there's a, there's a fantastic website called Memory Alpha and uh, people on the show use Memory Alpha. It's a, it's a, it's again, it's a wiki site. Uh, it's been created by fans. It's, it's meticulously well done. And, and I use that. Uh, it, we, we all use that. So it, it's absolutely, it's absolutely brilliant. There are, there are lots of complications with this sort of thing because there's Doctor Who's slightly different. I'll, I'll come back to that. Star Trek has obviously got a lot of on-screen stuff now. So if you if you try to follow the sort of um, biography of a character, of like if you try to follow the biography of a character like Spock, it's quite complicated, particularly now Spock's a character on Discovery and this sort of thing. And then there's the complication of, you know, there's over 800 Star Trek novels out there now. So there's quite a lot of stuff and a lot of it is now mutually exclusive. You know, it, it doesn't all connect up anymore. So when I was doing, um, I've done a lot of Star Trek books that are that are set on a planet called Cardassia. The trick I played was going, I'm just going to focus on this world over here uh, and kind of build that and not worry too much about all the other stuff because I can't keep it all in my head. There's just so much going on. But I'll, I'll find the way in and tell the stories I want to write. And that's worked out pretty well. Doctor Who is actually a completely um, different ball game in that um, Doctor Who has established that there's no such thing as canon. And, and what you need, basically, is the Doctor, the TARDIS, and a companion. And that really is all you need with Doctor Who. So Doctor Who's a little bit more free and easy. And and if you're in doubt, you could just go, oh, well, wibbly wobbly timey wimey. And that covers a multitude of sins. But Doctor Who's been kind of contradicting itself right right from the get-go. You know, there's about three or four versions of Atlantis and this kind of thing. So I think you sort of it, it sort of built up its own storylines um since 2005, since it came back. But I, I think the best Doctor Who stories handle that with quite a light touch. They focus on the moment of the Doctor arriving and pandemonium breaking out. <laughs> and that's how I treat my Doctor Who stories. That, and, and that way I don't have to worry about canon at all. Do you ever get really irate fans or anything? Because this is, okay, I'm a little bit, I, I am one of these irate fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is like stop oh digging myself what, what into a hole. No, 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 not you. Um, at least I don't think it was you. Um, <laughs> no, but like, okay. So when the first of the, the new Star Trek films came out with J.J. Abrams doing them, I burst into tears and was very upset by the portrayal of Spock because Spock is my life partner. Um, (laughs) And I was very, it was just, it was all wrong. And I was just, I was upset and it was just getting more and more upsetting. And then they brought Leonard Nimoy on screen and I just lost my shit and I was crying. And I was so upset with everybody who said that this new Star Trek film was amazing. And, yeah, it was like a big deal. Well, I did exactly the same in Peter Jackson's The Two Towers. I cried uh, with disappointment over that film. <laughs> so you're not alone. I have I have been that irate because because Faramir is my life partner. So uh, obviously the, the the great betrayal was far too much. So I, I have felt this pain intensely. 
and I'm really conscious of this. I'm really conscious of this, that I, if I, I'm writing somebody like, like Spock or Janeway or Picard or Kirk, these are figures that people really love and they really care about. And, you know, they have invested because, because I've done, I've done this. I've, I've invested emotional time, imaginative time, thought, inspiration, imaginative love. I've expended love. I've lavished love on these uh, characters. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified <laughs> that I'm going to make somebody cry. In fact, I did get a review once that said I'd, uh, that my uh, portrayal of a character was so unlike that it had made them cry. And I felt awful, felt absolutely awful. But there really isn't, all you can do is, is write in good faith. I mean, there's several actors have played Spock now and have brought their own interpretation. And so as a writer, I think you're bringing your own interpretation as well. You're trying to, trying to hit something essential. Like when you write The Doctor, you're trying, that, that line about never, never cowardly, never cruel, you're, you're trying to hit something essential but your own interpretation is going to vary little because it's kind of um, refracted through your own eyes, prismed through your own eyes. So you have to feel free to do your version, but try and tap into what it is that you think is essential and just hope, hope, hope that you don't make somebody cry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we fans, we do get rather attached. Um, <laughs> we love these things. We love them. So much. We yeah. As a ghostwriter, I know that even when we're writing to a brief, we're still writing something from our own mind. It's original narrative. And you just can't help bringing your own personal values to it, to an extent, obviously. So when you're writing for a franchise, are there restrictions as to how value-laden or political you can be? Um, so obviously we've talked a lot about writing for Star Trek. So given the original impetus behind that was to be almost social commentary as well as a very hopeful look to the future, when you're doing your Star Trek stuff, are you able to touch on more political content than other franchises you write for? Oh, I've I've never felt constrained in this way. I, my, my politics are pretty plain in the books, I think, uh, the things that matter to me or interest me. Um, so I'm very influenced by Ursula Le Guin, as I think most feminist science fiction writers are going to be. So I, I write as a feminist I write as someone who uh, is interested in, um, thanks to Le Guin, interested in anarchist theory uh, and anarchist modes of organisation. And these have all gone straight into my books. They've, I've never felt constrained in this way. And, and it's always been part of how I've talked about my writing and it hasn't stopped people commissioning me. So uh, they, they know what they're getting when they ask me to come and do a book. Uh, and and that's what I do. And I've got braver. Uh, I I've, I felt more confident. You know, to start with, I was I was you know, I, I hadn't done much stuff, but I I did as much as I could. And then gradually, I think particularly in the Star Trek novels, I, I started to go. I'm you know I'm I I want to redress some balance here. I'm gonna I'm gonna do parity uh, in characters. Uh, I, you know, I'm gonna make sure that there's not a majority of 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 male characters. So I went for parity. And nobody minded, so I thought, okay, I'll go. I'll go majority sort of female, female identifying. Nobody complained, so I did a book where you know everyone was was female or female identifying, and, and nobody complained. Uh, and I thought, oh, great, <laughs> I'll just I'll just keep on doing this then. Uh, and then I think the one after that, I did I did have a male point of view character, um, but I, I've I've never held back in this respect. 
my Cardassia books are all about a, a sort of transition from a, a totalitarian state to a kind of emerging democracy. So it, it, they're always about politics and they're always about my politics as well. So I've never felt constrained and people know what they're getting when they ask me to do a book. I think it's really awesome that you make a point of having more female characters in the series. I mean, I personally would like that attitude to some some of the Star Wars ones, if you can get yourself onto that that franchise that'd be great um but um you know star trek is certainly something for me that was always very very powerful when i was a a a young kid and i completely fell in love with star trek when i was very small but and and not just me you know plenty you know the stories about Whoopi goldberg you know watching uhura and that was the reason she got into acting and then you had you know, all these women of power, women on bridge, you have, and then we had Janeway, you know, the the captain and she was a woman and it's amazing that we have them. But a lot of these really big franchises really don't have that many major female characters, or if they do, they are of the Princess Leia variety, whom I absolutely love, worship and adore, but she is the lone woman surrounded by all the men you've got the sort of brave one the clever one the sassy one and the girl (laughs) and and I got and I got fed up of that and I got I got fed up of having to inhabit universes that were like that so so that's why I decided to put more women and female identifying and, and 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 just to make it as diverse as possible as I became better informed about intersexual feminism to try and model that into my fiction i got i got fed up of only having one place of entry into a into a story and and i thought well if i'm fed up and you know i'm a i'm a middle class white heading into mid well middle age now person then imagine how fed up other people must feel so I'd, i have tried to do that more and more and more because i think it does matter it 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 helps to recognise yourself in a text and not always have to be going through that extra effort of trying to carve a little space where you can be in this story world. Yeah, so that matters. Do you think there are efforts to make more women part of the the writing team behind some of these franchises? Because certainly, again, you know, earlier on, it tended to be a very, very much a boys' club in terms of who was writing the tie-in novels, who was writing the series and the the films, and all these sorts of things. Um, do you think there's that's changing? Absolutely, absolutely, I do. Uh, and in fact, it was funny. I was having this discussion with somebody just the other day because uh, I've been watching original Trek. Uh, I'd got to the third season, and uh, I was chatting to a friend on Twitter. And he was saying, you know, I think that third season of original Trek has got more women writers on it uh, than any season of Trek since. And I thought, oh, and, 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 and I had a little look around uh, and because I, I had a hunch. Um, and he was more or less right, except for um, the most recent season of Discovery, which has got something like, um, I mean, it's tricky to tell off names. Um, but um, there are out of 13 episodes, I think 10 have got a 
a, a woman involved because in, they're quite complicated American script credits. So you can see story by or teleplay or written by. At least ten out of thirteen have got a, a, a woman there, um, and that's 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 huge. That and a, and a female showrunner as well. That's, that's such a difference. You know, can, you could look at um, other seasons and see of, of other Trek shows and, and see one woman uh, or, or one non-man. Um, and this makes such a difference, I think, to the kinds of stories that we that we get to see on screen. And I think uh, people like Big Finish, who produced the uh, Doctor Who spin-off audios, um, they got called on this a few years ago. You know, people sort of, I guess about five, six years ago now, I think, um, uh, somebody did a survey and went back to Big Finish and said, do you, do you realise how few, you know, how male orientated your writing stable is? And they looked at, uh, looked at it and they said, do you know what? You're completely right. And they went out and actively sort of tried to, um, you know, find new voices. I think they've done pretty well. They've, uh, you know, I've, I've worked on a scheme where they were mentoring uh, new writers to do audios for one of their own. Um, uh, collections, so um, one of their ranges. So uh, I I think that certainly the franchises that I've worked in, there's been a there's been a conscious effort to improve this because the stories are just better that way. Diverse stories are, are better, and they don't always get everything right, but they're trying. I, I I do feel like they're trying. Okay, so I have a question. If you're asked to write for a franchise that has a really objectionable character, how do you cope with writing that character? Oh, well, I think you've got to you've you've got to find what makes that character tick and and you've got to inhabit their reality because because nobody's a villain of their own narrative, yeah? Um everyone's a kind of, you know, they they kind of strut on and they're, they're the hero of whatever story's going on. So I, I think there are sort of two different types of character. There's a there's a character in the Picard book that I that I actively loathed, and he he's from the show. He's a character called um, Bruce Maddox, uh, and he's in Next Gen. He's he's the one who uh, in 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 Measure of a Man, uh, Next Gen episode. He's the one who wants to take Data apart and see how he works, and he pops up in Picard, and I I really had very limited respect. <laughs> For this individual, but you had to you had to present the world through his eyes. He's he's very driven, and he's very sort of uh, he he has a vision of what he wants to do, but he's quite selfish, and he doesn't sort of realise the harm that he's doing people around him, and he has a kind of acolyte that he treats quite badly. And I've had reviews that have sort of said, "Oh, I hated this guy," and you know, I'm taking a star off for this guy, and I'm thinking, well. You know, you are not meant to like him. And all I can do as a writer is, is present the reality of who that person is uh, and leave it to you as the reader, not to be conned by that, which I think is something that all writers do. You know, we if he was an original character and uh, uh, he had the same character flaws, if you're in his point of view, you're going to get his justification. So you've got to, you've got to present that character authentically. And then I think there's another kind of objectionable character, and they they kind of have their own dangers. So uh, there's a character in Deep Space Nine who's absolutely my favourite character in the whole of Deep Space Nine, and that's a character called Garrick. Yes! (laughs) Yeah, you've heard of him. (laughs) Yeah. And he's amazing. He's loquacious, he's charming, he's funny, he's subversive. 
He's in love with the doctor. He's incredible to write. He's brilliantly performed. He's a murderer. He's a torturer. He's an assassin. And he's quite a nasty piece of work. And whenever I write Garrick, and I love writing Garrick, I love writing him in first person, I love writing him in third person, I constantly have to remind myself not to be beguiled by this character because he is very, very beguiling. And that's part of the interest of writing him. He's also had a sad childhood, yeah, <laughs> which is very attractive to a writer. Yeah, to kind of justify the behaviour. But it's really, really important to remember what this character has done uh, and never to lose sight of that. And he's done some pretty, pretty bad things. And that's a fascinating experience to write. Um, and you've got to remember not to be beguiled. Uh, so again, you've got to present this character authentically. Uh, and not forget the cruel and quite bad things that he has done and would happily continue to do. So uh, that's my sort of tack on writing objectionable characters. There are, there are ones that are bad, but you love. And you've got to be careful. And then there are ones that are pretty nasty people. The one that I can never manage to do justice to is Ducat out of Deep Space Nine, who I, I just detest. I think he's monstrous. Uh, and I, I, I've never found a way of kind of, I don't really want to go into that psyche because I, I think I'd find it boring more than anything else. But he's a really nasty piece of work. Uh, so I sort of stay away um, from that character. But um, yeah, objectionable characters are, uh, are interesting in their own right, I think. Okay, I am going to throw a curveball here. <laughs> go for it. Um, and I can only think of an example from Star Wars, which is not one of your franchises, so hopefully it frees you up a bit. But I was thinking of Jar Jar Binks. So here is a character that is almost universally detested. Say if you were approached to write a book about Jar Jar. <laughs> He was the main character and you had to make him sort of interesting and maybe, you know, I'm assuming you also detest Jar Jar. I mean, most of us do. Um, I, I mean, I'm actually a bit of a Jar Jar apologist, but, <clears throat> but like, how would you go about trying to tackle that? Because that is not only like a character that you might not get along with, but a character that you'd sort of have to somehow stay authentic to while redeeming it within yeah. the the universe. My kid loved loved Jar Jar Binks the first time she watched that film. She uh Yes, but how old was she? <laughs> yeah, but got her hooked True. on the franchise. Yeah. True. She yeah. so she was maybe six. Yeah. That that was a way in. I mean Leia was really the way in. Uh so you know I think I think Jar Jar does uh, it's like the um it's like the burping bins in the first episode of uh, Doctor Who when it came back on screen. Everybody went, oh, no, those burping bins. Of course, it was what all the kids were doing in the playground on Monday. They were running up to the bins and, you know, at them, you know, <laughs> so it did exactly what it was supposed to do. How would I write Jar Jar Binks? Oh, dear, goodness me. I think the the problem with writing that character is that he he makes, he's he's kind of written as a as a fool, isn't he? So he makes mistakes. You, would you write? Would you try and do something with his his kindliness, his good heartedness, the way that he 
palpably cares for everyone who's around him. It's slightly out of his depth, aren't we all? Slightly out of our depth. That would be that would be how I'd play it. I don't think I could hang a whole novel off him, but I I think I could probably write him as part of a part of an ensemble. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said about the burping bins because Jar Jar Binks isn't there for us adults. He's there for the kids. Like you say, he's a he's there to be a way in and some comedy and just to keep it going. And yeah. Una and I were discussing our kids before recording and I was saying my daughter will not sit and watch ep- uh, Star Trek, uh, Star Trek, sorry, Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, because she just tunes out. And I keep mm. thinking if I introduced her via Anakin and Jar Jar Binks, she might just hold it a little bit more because it's a very different experience being a kid today than it was when, you know, we were all young and something like Star Wars was cutting edge and wonderful. And, you know, you compare it with some of the stuff that they see today, which is, you know, just astounding. And it must be like when I was a kid and watching um, Fred Astaire and things like that, and you go, it's all right, but it's black and white and they're talking a lot and, you know, where are the laser guns? (laughs) I think the big thing I've noticed with my kid is that she, if there isn't a female character of interest, she's she's not here for, she's not here for your patriarchal junk yeah <laughs> and that's a big that's a big uh problem perhaps with episode four though she does love episode four because leia turns up and she's nuts about leia but we've left films we've we've been in the cinema and we and she's turned to me and said we, we can go now this um, i'm not interested because there isn't a good enough female character for her to identify whereas you know i think of of seven-year-old me sitting and going, well, I can kind of fit myself in that space. And you think, wow, what a change. So um, so I, maybe Ray would work. Maybe, um, you know, episode uh, seven would work. Could be. Although I was thinking about Megan's question of how would you write Jar Jar, maybe the perfect novel is to pitch Jar Jar with Leia. And, <laughs> you know, although wouldn't he be an old man by then? But, you know, if, if you're supposed to be going for the kids as, you know, Writing for writing a Jar Jar novel is basically writing a kids' novel with a bit of fun, maybe YA, yeah, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, if you pitched him with like someone like Leia or you know more Amidala, that would be amazing. I'd totally read that. That might work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I shall. I shall have a little think. I have to. I have to impress uh, my child somehow, and I think a Star Wars book would be. Uh, I have a. I have a shelf um, just behind me, which you can't see, which is basically a shelf of of my publications. Uh, and uh, so I've got I've got the sort of three shelves of my stuff, and then the other two shelves are um, uh, my my favourite uh, female science fiction writers, one of whom is Vonda McIntyre, and I've got all of Vonda McIntyre's books on the shelf above mine. And Vonda McIntyre did a Star Wars book, and I had it out the other day because I was uh, I was writing about Vonda. And my kid came in and she looked at the shelf and I'm, I'm kidding you not, there's three shelves of books with my name on. And she looked at the shelf and she went, is that a Star Wars book? <laughs> oh, blessed. <laughs> Can't win. <laughs> so I'll have, to, I'll have to find out how to do one. As, as someone who fell in love with Star Wars from a very, very young age and Leia what I have always wanted is to have more amazing women in that canon because I I still, to me, Leia is the ultimate character and 
I just feel like there should have been more. If yeah. if you could produce one layer in Star Wars, there's got to be more. <laughs> you um, have you watched this? Uh, this little uh, series of shorts called Forces of Destiny. Um, no, I haven't. And they're almost entirely focused on the um, on the female characters. So they kind of they they they're tiny little sort of they're quite fan fictiony actually. There'll be you know there'll be a quiet moment with Padme or there'll be Leia and somebody else, or they'll have one about Ray or Ahsoka or um, Jyn Erso. All these, I didn't know any of this a year ago. Um, <laughs> and, and characters that not even I can can recognise. There's also one uh, with uh, Chewie and the Porgs, which is, which is one of my favourites. But they're almost entirely, uh, they're kind of little moments, so they're, they're maybe they're maybe three or four minutes long, but they're almost entirely focused on the female characters. So I think I, I think they're really tight. Even the Mandalorian has some pretty good, um, pretty good female characters in it as well. So I think they're trying. Yeah, let's see what they do post Gina Carano. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sad. There we Very go. Sad. You spoke a moment ago about writing for one of your favourite characters, Garrick. And obviously we, right at the very beginning, said that you started off writing about fan fiction. So I wanted to ask, when you were obviously making the transition from fan fiction to writing for franchises, did you find some way to keep some space between you and your favourite characters? Because obviously they're quite closely aligned, but there's just it's more about writing for a wider audience rather than just perhaps writing what you might want to see. So how did you do with, with doing the two, the two different types of writing? Oh, I think I think I was very lucky in this respect, um, particularly with with Garrick, that I I kind of settled I I sort of settled quite early on on the story that I wanted to tell, which was kind of rebuilding Cardassia, and um, at which has a bit of a sticky end in Deep Space Nine. I don't, I don't realize I don't want to spoil it for people because I, I realize it's quite a good ending but also his kind of response to that and and as he looked back on his life and his kind of complicity and what happens to his home world what he would decide to do with his life going forward so I I had quite a clear idea uh, of what I wanted to do with that character and I more or less got to do it I thought I I would have liked to have done one more book I'm I'm not sure that's going to happen but I, I would like to have done one more book. It's quite clear in my mind uh, where that story would go. So I've been, I've been, I've been pretty lucky. I can't go near the fan fiction these days because you, you just can't. There are, there are kind of legal complications. It's just too, just too sticky. So maybe I kind of, um, I, I, I miss the fun of that. But then I'm still writing Tolkien fan fiction, which uh, you, you know I, I am unlikely ever to get to. I kind of joke about doing a, a tie novel for the TV series would be awesome, but uh, you know it's it's it, that's unlikely to happen. Though, if anyone is listening, <laughs> please commission me instantly. Um, so I, I kind of get my fan fiction fix from that, and uh, and and when I just need a little break from it's it's ridiculous, really. Uh, I've, what what have I done today? I've written a novel. Uh, what shall I do over the weekend? Oh, I might write some fan fiction for to relax myself. I sort of, I, I kind of go back to my, my Tolkien vein. So I, I think I was lucky uh, that I, that I was very strongly attracted to a character that I could do the kinds of stories that I wanted to do. Uh, the actor who played Garrick and Andrew Robinson uh, wrote a novel about him as well. 
so sort of uh, aligning our visions of of, of the character as, as well has been really interesting. Uh, I think I had a different a different sense of what his adolescence or his childhood might have been. So some so sort of making those fit together was 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 really interesting. I th- I've just been very lucky. You mentioned how once you'd started writing for franchises, you then started getting more jobs and so on. I mean, would you ever consider writing for a franchise that you maybe weren't familiar with yet or weren't a huge fan of? Because this always struck me. I'm not sure I would want to write for a franchise that I wasn't a fan of, although it would then lessen the, potentially lessen the the kind of fear about not wanting to mess up this wonderful thing that you already love. But, you know, J.J. Abrams always said that he was never a Star Trek guy. And to me, that totally came out in the Star Trek that he produced because it was maybe tangentially related to Star Trek. Um, I'm really, I'm still bitter about this. <laughs> it's a tricky one, that film, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it, it it's not recognisably Kirk, I think. In no, no. Or just generally Star Trek. It's more just like a, um, a flashy action film, which if anyone's watched Star Trek, you know, is just not it. Not Where was the philosophy? Yeah. <laughs> I have very ambivalent feelings about that film because it's uh, 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 the, there's a moment in that film where they they nearly imagine what it's like to be female and they can't quite manage it. <laughs> But would would you ever try writing for a franchise that you weren't, you know, previously a fan? That's a really tricky one. I mean, uh, I hadn't seen Star Trek Picard, for example, obviously because it because it hadn't been made, and I hadn't seen much of Discovery. As it happened, uh, the Discovery book I got asked to do was about the character that I just thought was amazing, which was was Tilly. Uh, so when they 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 came yes and, yeah when they came and said do you want to do a book about Tilly I'm like yeah absolutely but Picard I hadn't seen I and um I was getting the scripts as as they were being revised and absolutely loving them so I've I've sort of and I, and I guess they were Star Trek so uh, but but they're, they're quite different shows they've got a different flavour I wouldn't have called myself a, a fan of Voyager I'd I'd watched it. Uh, and enjoyed it and, you know, kind of stuck with it. And I hadn't watched it since the finale, and I'd, uh, which I'd, I'd seen in the States, bizarrely. I was out in the States and we had a little kind of uh, gathering of, I was at a convention or something, we watched it with a bunch of friends. But I hadn't really watched Voyager since then. But I, I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity to write a Janeway book. That that was just right up my street. So I suppose I've taken on, I've, I've taken on parts of the franchise that perhaps I wouldn't necessarily have called myself a fan I hadn't written fan fiction or I hadn't uh, I, I, I don't I, I hadn't rewatched for a long time so so you never know but it definitely helps it helps to love it obviously with the primary characters in a show you're going to be quite restricted in in what you can write and you can put in a few quirks and whatever but you've got to stick quite a lot to canon but I imagine when it comes to writing secondary characters, they are less closely controlled than the main protagonists. Uh, so I wondered if you'd invented any species as part of writing for Doctor Who or Star Trek or anything. And if the, if you had, whether there was any that you particularly enjoyed inventing and thought, oh, they're really cool. And as sort of the, the comparison to that, I also wondered if there was any character you'd ever really wanted to write for in any of the franchises and never got the chance to. 
So um, I had a I had a fun species that I invented that were in my book, uh, The Missing, and I I think I called them the the children the the children of the open sky, and they were sort of they were they were wanderers they 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 kind of um, they'd left quite an unpleasant um, society, and they were they were outcasts they'd been street kids and they kind of wandered around um, planets taking away people who'd been thrown out of their homes. So they, they would tend to sort of um, find children who were scavenging and this kind of thing and, and adopt them and take them away. And they they spoke in they spoke in a, a rhythmic pattern that's the rhythmic pattern that Tom Bombadil uses. Uh, so it goes dum 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 de dum dum de dum de dum dum So they spoke like that. And I also managed to make them um, I, they used they them pronouns all the way through. And I managed to sustain that through that. That was a pain in the neck in the proof. So I kept on, no, it's not him. It's not her. It's they, it's them. So I was very, very fond of them. They kind of wandered into the book and then then wandered off again. They had a great first contact scene where, you know, all the stealthy guys going, oh, greetings, first contact. And they're like, hi, come on in, sit down, have a cup of tea. The kids are just playing. And they were really kind of, they're really kind of great. So I really loved them. Uh, There's a secondary character who was a Cardassian um, called um, Arati Mavet, who's a, a sort of, um, uh, um, no nonsense uh, police officer that I really liked. Um, in terms of uh, characters, uh, established characters that I would like to have written, I'd love to write more about Kira from Deep Space Nine, who I've I've only written in passing, uh, and I'd love to write Luaxana Troy. So I think those would be the the ones I'd go for. She just chews up the scenery, doesn't she? She'd be amazing. She's phenomenal. Oh, and I get—I guess I would love to write uh, number one, who is going to be in Strange New Worlds, and who bears my name. So uh, she's Una. So I would—I guess I'd love to write her one day. The fact that they're actually finally getting to to put number one where she was meant to be is just amazing. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And they gave and they gave her my name. <laughs> <laughs> It's the brilliant thing. <laughs> so, uh, so I think I'd like to do her. Franchise writing sounds both terrifying and quite fun. Uh, I think I definitely would love to be able to sit around watching Star Trek all day as part of work in inverted commas. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure I could handle all the pressure of of really um, getting everything right. I think I would be absolutely terrified, but right. uh, more power to you. It's a lark you. of a job. It's a lark of a job. I've been very lucky and I, I have a great time, I think. And, and thank you for having me on. It's, they were really interesting questions, really good, really good questions. Thank you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.